the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Cannabis Unlocked. I'm your host today, Jordan Euclid, one of the founding partners of Key Investment Partners. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Chris Yetter of Dumont Global. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing all right, Jordan. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Uh, really excited to have you on the podcast. I believe that you're the first um, hedge fund focused investor that we've had on the podcast. So really excited to learn more about your story and, and how you decided to move into the cannabis space. Sure. Happy to be here. Awesome. So with that, why don't we start with a little bit of your personal background? Where did you grow up? How did you uh, decide to get into finance? Sure. So I grew up in Texas and my first job after college, I was actually a professor in uh, Spain and I taught statistics and finance at a university there. I left Spain and moved to the United States right during the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. And my first job in the industry was really focused on short selling. And I pretty much exclusively looked for fraudulent businesses in Latin America. So Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, those were my stomping grounds. And trying to find companies that were either scamming their shareholders or hurting consumers or doing something that was against the law, which, which kind of wraps back into cannabis because in Latin America, a lot of those companies were were breaking the drug trafficking laws. That's really interesting. Um, and for folks who maybe aren't as familiar, could you help explain a little bit of what is short selling and, and how does that relate to long only investing? Sure. So in typical investment, you try to buy something and then you hope that it'll become more valuable and you sell it later at a higher price. Short selling is the opposite, where you identify an investment that's publicly listed and you think that it's overvalued, either because the company is just doing well today and things are going to go bad in the future. That's one version. A second version would be that they're lying about their business today and they're actually not doing well. And if that becomes known or exposed, that the stock price would fall. And so I spent the majority of my career focused on these kind of companies, companies that were breaking the law or lying to people and going short their stock and kind of patiently waiting. And, and if they would fall, it might happen in a year, it might happen in four years, but we just sat back and waited. We didn't kind of try to make that happen. Gotcha. That makes total sense. So how did things progress in your career from that time focused on LATIM? Well, I, I worked in the region for almost a decade. And in 2017, I joined up with 3G Capital, which is a family office for several Brazilian businessmen who are most famous for being the controlling shareholders of Anheuser-Busch. So the, the link there was that I worked in Latin America for a long time and got introduced to these guys. And at 3G Capital, I started a fund internally where I invested in all sorts of different things, but usually what we call orphaned assets, assets that were 
a little bit below the radar of institutional investors like small cap companies, companies that were based in far flung parts of the world like Argentina and Venezuela. And that led me to cannabis. I first learned about US cannabis industry only in 2021, so maybe 18 months ago. I'm, I'm not a big cannabis user myself. And I was only vaguely aware that there was this pace of legalization. I knew it was legal in Colorado and California, but I didn't realize how many states had legalized. And so during 2021, we looked at the industry, me and my team, and realized that it was in that point of the S-curve where the early adopters had already moved and now it was becoming the, the middle adopters, states like Missouri and Arkansas and Illinois, that you don't think of as being very blue or very liberal like California and Colorado. So we decided to dedicate uh, an investment fund to focus solely on this opportunity and a lot of it in the public markets because that's where my expertise was. That's great. And could you talk a little bit about, you know, what is a hedge fund and how does that structure differ from a traditional mutual fund that folks are a little bit familiar with? So hedge funds have a lot of flexibility. We can do the same things as mutual funds, like buy a stock and hope for it to go up. We can also do more complicated trades, like going short a company and waiting for it to go down. We can trade options more freely, buying call options and put options. We can trade in debt, like uh, issuing a bond to a company. Maybe the bond would have uh, part of equity attached to that same bond. And so we have a lot of flexibility to do complex transactions. And that gives us uh, various toolkits that we can use. For instance, if a company is growing really quickly, we might invest equity. If it's growing slowly, we might invest credit in the company. And if it's declining, we might go short that company. And so we can really do something for every point in the life cycle of a business. That makes total sense. For uh, in the sense of like, what, what really attracted you to the sector? Did you, you know, see a lack of competitors or, or what were the driving forces behind it? So it's two separate things. The thing that attracted me to cannabis companies was that they are growing quickly, growing between 10 and 30% per year for a lot of these large multi-state operators. And they were priced very cheaply because not a lot of people owned them. So that's what attracted me to the companies. What attracted me to starting an asset management business in cannabis is that there weren't many competitors. There are a couple private equity funds, a couple debt funds, a couple public markets funds. But if you add them up, maybe there's a dozen or 20. Whereas if you look at traditional sectors like the pharmaceutical sector, the oil and gas sector, uh, you'll find thousands of asset managers targeted on those opportunities. Yeah, that makes total sense. And that was, you know, certainly a big part of the driver for when we formed key investment partners. And, you know, it's it's been interesting. We certainly thought that there would be more institutions that came in in those interim periods. And I think, you know, with COVID, that maybe scared off some folks who would have otherwise started a cannabis-focused fund. 
Uh, and I think a lot of folks are really just waiting on the sidelines until they see some major federal regulatory reform, which in the interim period gives, you know, the handfuls of folks like us in this sector um, a great opportunity set of opportunities. I'd also say that it, it was a lot harder to start the fund than we expected. I had been told by people it's very difficult to own cannabis companies in the United States. It's hard to buy these plant-touching businesses for whatever reason. And I, I arrogantly thought, you know, I've been doing hedge funds for 15 years. There's nothing that's too complicated. We've done Brazil and Venezuela and all these complicated places. So the cannabis industry is going to be easy. Then when we went and tried to do it, it was actually very difficult. All of the logistical administration parts, like how do you buy the stock? How do you custody the stock? We're much more, much more involved and complicated than, than I expected. Mm. So that's another barrier is that if you say today, I want to invest in cannabis, you can't do it tomorrow. It might take a month or three months to get that set up. Totally. Yeah, that's, what, that's funny. It's kind of one of those things with cannabis, right? It's just like everything is more expensive, is harder, takes longer than you expected. <laughs> totally. So now that you're all set up, what are some of uh, you know, the uh, areas that get you excited? Are you looking at both CSC and NASDAQ listed securities, or do you have a bias one over the other? We look at everything we can. There's not a lot of options for a public markets investor. Just taking a big step back, if you screen the whole universe of companies using Capital IQ or Bloomberg, and you just search for the word cannabis, you'll find... 300 to 400 companies. And I'm also going to include in there, let's also throw the word psilocybin or psychedelic or any of these other schedule one substances that have a path towards legality. So three or 400 companies, that's our total investment universe. If we we're investing in internet companies, there'd be thousands, but three or 400, that's it. So we're focused on all three to 400. Many of them are very, very small. We're sub- $10 million of market cap. So you can pretty much exclude those and you're left with maybe 150 to 200. So within that 150 to 200, we look at every country, every subsector, every active substance, whether it's cannabis or psilocybin or something different. And that's our investment universe. Gotcha. That makes total sense. And uh, are you still uh, operating as a long short strategy and if so have there been has it been easier or harder to find companies in, in one of those two buckets we are we are still long and short the one nuance i would say is that a typical long short fund is probably mostly long equities and short equities the, the difference for us because this is an emerging industry we do own a lot of debt and so for instance if we approach a company to make an investment in them oftentimes we'll invest in a convertible bond or a convertible loan but stepping back, where do we like the longs and shorts? We have a big long and short portfolio because the cannabis industry is, is new. It's an emerging industry. It's as if you went back in time and were doing software in 1990, or if you were doing biotech in 2000. And if you were looking at software companies in 1990, you might've picked Microsoft and gotten rich, but there were also dozens of software companies that you and I have never heard of, and they all went bankrupt and failed. Yeah. So we're trying to find both. We want to find the Microsoft and all these failure guys. That makes total sense. 
you know, and, and I think one of the things that uh, we've seen in the public markets and cannabis over the last year or so is that, you know, performance has really gotten pretty materially impacted. You know, it was already kind of trending down and then you saw the broader uh, markets decline over the last couple of quarters. So I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on what's really driving that? And do you think that, you know, it's still going to go lower or have we kind of hit the, uh, hit the nadir here? The so we're talking mostly about I'm going to talk mostly about the U.S. plant touching companies. So set aside the Canadian businesses and some of the Nasdaq listed ancillary companies like Weed Maps or, or the lending platforms. So in the U.S. plant touching companies, what's unique is that they have a very limited shareholder base. Large institutions like Vanguard and Fidelity or head large hedge funds like Tiger Global don't have any involvement at all in trading these stocks. So if you added up every asset manager in the world, probably 1% or fewer would even consider buying and selling a cannabis company. So if only 1% of people can trade it, you're going to get wild fluctuations in price. You're going to have very low trading volumes. And it's it resembles, to me, it resembles a lot trading in a country like in Argentina or in Venezuela. It's not the level of liquidity and transparency that you're used to in the United States. But of course, these are all American companies. And so you get the legal protections of the US, but without the, the capital markets protections. Yeah. And I think that is such a, a great point you bring out. And one of the very attractive parts of the cannabis industry, right, is that to your point, you have the rule of law and the established legal precedent of a developed economy, but you also have the underlying secular tailwinds of an emerging markets growth industry, plus all these barriers to entry from the traditional investors and, and asset managers. Yeah, and a, and a key difference from an emerging market is that there's a defined endpoint where this emerging market becomes a regular market, and that endpoint would be when there's steps towards normalization, whether those steps are small, little steps along the way, like capital markets protections and listing their stocks, or whether they're the final ending point of descheduling cannabis and removing all of the excess tax that these companies pay. Those steps will bring it more similar to a regular industry like oil and gas or pharmaceuticals. And let's talk a little bit more, you know, as you talk about something that would open up capital markets access to businesses and then eventually hopefully full on federal legalization. What are your thoughts on what are the real signals that are going to be required for the industry before those larger traditional institutions really start being more active? Well, you, you need a change in regulation and the nearest term change would be the so-called SAFE Act, which would let you have a bank account and process payment transactions and maybe uplist your stock to a regular exchange like the NICE or the NASDAQ. And I think that will have a positive effect on valuations, but I don't think that's the final step. You're, you're not going to have Fidelity, Vanguard, Tiger Global trading the cannabis industry just like any other industry. You'll have more people, maybe instead of 1%, it'll be 3% of people, but it won't be everybody all at once. And so to me, it's yeah. a series of gradual changes. And the, the final one would be descheduling of cannabis so that it's a drug like alcohol or tobacco. 
And at that point, I, I think you will see, you know, virtually 100% of asset managers have some involvement in the sector. Totally. That makes complete sense. And, you know, even 3%, right, it still sounds like a really small number, but at the same time, you, you triple the, you know, the free flow that's going to students today. That's a pretty significant needle mover. Yes, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and I actually don't think it's 1% of people investing today. I think the right answer would be less than 1%. We don't know precisely what it is, so it might be more than tripling the investor base. Sure. One of the things interesting about emerging sectors of cannabis is, you know, being too early, right, can be just as bad as being too late. And so I think that's where... Some folks have felt they've maybe gotten burned. I also think that there were, unfortunately, in the early days, a lot of companies, like you mentioned, that are very tiny, that listed publicly, just kind of taking advantage of the hype. And so a lot of the investors that you know got behind those more speculative investments didn't do well. So that's my long-winded way of asking, how did you get comfortable with the risk that you were too early? It's a great question. So I think two things inform my decision on that. The first one is just look at, where we are in the adoption curve. There's an adoption curve of any product, whether it's radios or televisions or the internet, and how many states are legal in the US. Before COVID, so rewind to the day before COVID hit, there were about 10 states that had adult use legal cannabis, 10 out of 50, so 20%. Right now, today, we're at 19 states. So we've gone from 20% to almost 40%. And if you drew an adoption curve, we're right in the thick of it, right in that middle part of the adoption curve. And in a lot of industries, that's the optimal time to invest. So in our view, if you roll the clock forward, you're gonna get about four states a year legalizing. So if we're at 19 today, add on, say, say we roll forward five years, four times five is 20, 19 plus 20, that's 38 states. So then you're at the very end of the adoption curve. In our view, these next five years, between today and five years from today, are kind of that sweet spot. And if instead we had launched our fund five years in the past, it would have probably been too early. And if we wait five years and launch it five years from now, we're probably too late. And that's how we thought about it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'd, I'd add one more thing, which is that in our strategy, long and short, the good thing is, we don't have to just buy good companies. We can also find the people who are either running their business in a dumb way or they're actively scamming their shareholders and we can short their stocks. And because it's a new industry, because it's mostly focused on retail investors, there are a lot of scam artists and there are a lot of people that are, that are pretending to run a cannabis company or they're doing the things that give the appearance of running a cannabis company Whereas all they're really doing is raising money and paying themselves and they're not building anything of value. So we're short those kind of businesses. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any key indicators that you've been able to kind of quickly identify like, hey, this looks, this looks fishy. This is a company I'm going to dig into a little bit closer. It's different depending on the industry you're looking at. So in a lot of industries, you know, I'm now I'm talking about my former life short selling on a broad basis. One thing I would look at is who's the most profitable company in an industry. And if you're making a commodity product, like you're making cement and you're the most profitable cement company, 
I would look into that and I'd say, what are you doing? Are you the best at this or is there something nefarious going on? In the cannabis industry, that analogy doesn't quite hold because every state is so different. And if you're very profitable, probably you just won the lottery and you have a license in a really good state like Florida or Illinois. And that's not wrong. You didn't do anything incorrect. You just kind of got lucky. And so what I would look for for fraud in the cannabis industry is I think that the surest thing is, does the company you're investing in produce cash? Does it generate cash flow? And if you look at the best companies, they make free cash flow. And then if you look at the okay companies, they make EBITDA. And if you look at the really bad companies, there are some companies that don't even make gross profit. And I'm, I'm singling out some Canadian companies where their cost of goods sold, the cost to produce the cannabis is greater than the revenue they make. So they're, they're growing a product and then selling it for less than it costs to grow. That is a bad business. You, you, you're not good at what you do and you're not gonna survive for long if that's your setup. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's one of the funny dynamics with the cannabis market, right? In the sense that our view, and, and I would uh, you know, tell me if you disagree, but our view internally is that the US market overall is much more attractive than the Canadian one. However, with it being federally legal in Canada, those businesses are able to list on major exchanges, benefit from higher market caps, higher liquidity, higher volumes, but are operating in a much more difficult operating and, and kind of smaller total market size. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, a little bit interesting paradox in that sense. I, we broadly agree with you that the US market's better than Canada, but I want to be a little more nuanced in that because today it's legal in 37 states, but the federal government says cannabis is illegal can't cross the state border. You can't grow in New Jersey and sell in New York, for instance. And because of that, the US isn't, there's no such thing as the US. There's 37 different states. And when we make our investments, we think of, uh, for instance, a multi-state operator, a guy who's in 10 states. We think of he's in a little bit of Illinois, a little bit of Florida, et cetera. And we have a view on every state ranked from the very best states to the worst states, something like Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a state where they gave anybody who wants can have a license. So there's everyone has a license. There's zillions of stores. There's lots of cultivation and everyone's losing money. So as an example, if you picked Oklahoma, that's not a good state to be in for growing cannabis or selling cannabis. Other states are attractive. So I would make that one nuance that the U.S. has, has a wide range from great places to invest in they're not good at all places to us. That's a great point. And uh, I'm glad you bring that up. Um, so Chris, so I guess, uh, you know, going forward, uh, there are folks that are listening that want to learn more about you and the Dumont team. Is there a way to reach out to you or something like that? Yeah, feel free to check out our website. Uh, we have uh, some information up there. We have our contact info and, and please feel free to contact us. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for coming by. had a really fun conversation. So I always love getting your perspective on, you know, where, where things are shaping up in the public markets for cannabis these days. Yeah, nice talk to you, Jordan. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Chris, and have a great rest of your afternoon. Same to you.